0: Is it selfish to want to live? I mean, if you're saying, well, we should be replaced by the next generation, why don't you go die right now? So that's the one else come by. I mean, it's very hypocritical. The same people accuse you of wasting money, but they'll spend money uh, you know, on very expensive holidays. Is that more important than living? Uh, at the end of life, people spend huge amounts of money just to buy a few extra days or weeks of miserable life. And nobody criticizes that. We're talking about something where if it succeeds, you've got an indefinite period of time.
1: I'm Bri Prestige. And this is Hyperscale, the podcast of the future. We don't know for certain what the future of technology might look like, but we're starting to form some ideas. No answer lasts forever, but we drive transformation with all the right questions. We're curious, we're adapting with the times, we're enjoying the discovery. We are bringing you an exclusive episode of Hyperscale, live at the Longevity Summit in Dublin, a four-day conference with experts and scientists in the ageing field. This is a real fangirl moment for me, as today I'm introducing you to Max Moore, author of The Proactionary Principle, co-editor of The Transhumanist Reader, and the Director of Communications at Biostasis Technologies, a cryopreservation organisation. We'll discuss the cryopreservation process as human life extension, digital twins, transhumanism, and mind uploading. So what were you just saying? So you can have 10 coffees a day?
0: Yeah, I can, I can drink coffee till the evening and go straight to sleep. Because yeah, there's a certain gene, I forget which one it is, but if you have this genetic variant, you process the caffeine very rapidly, so you don't really even feel the effects. Whereas other people, the opposite extreme, one, one cup will keep them awake all night. So it's very important to know your personal biochemistry.
1: Interesting. So where could I go and find out more about my biochemistry?
0: Well, there's a lot of companies offering these tests. One that's been around for a long time is 23andMe, named after the 23 chromosomes. And they've been around forever. And I think when I did it a number of years ago, it was like $100, which is nothing. And you get a lot of information. It's not a whole genomic uh, decoding, but it's kind of all the, the main invariant. So it'll tell you, for instance, if you have the cancer, uh, breast cancer variant, the BRCA1 gene, uh, the caffeine gene, it tells you whether you have the, uh, the variants that put you at risk of Alzheimer's disease. So if you have one copy, your risk goes up several fold. If you have two copies, it's really bad news. And that also actually is interesting because the same variant that affects your Alzheimer's risk also tells you whether you can eat a lot of fat or not, no problem. So some people can eat fat, no problem, other people not so much. So any dietary advice that says, this is the diet for everybody, is nonsense because it really depends on your personal biochemistry. And we're just starting to figure out how to test that.
1: Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about this. So we're just figuring out how to test it. What other things can we do? What, what other things can I do to find out all of these things about myself so I can say, oh, yeah, I'll, I can drink 10 cups of coffee or I, I could do this?
0: Well, there's a lot of different tests, and I, I don't want to recommend other ones too much because I'm not sure how solid they are at this point. Uh, some people will... I, I've done allergy testing, and it, to me it was pretty much nonsense, the results, it, it wasn't very helpful. It told me that I was fine with wheat, which I know I'm not, and that I had problems with broccoli, which I don't, so that wasn't very helpful.
1: My friend had one of these recently, and it came back with this massive laundry list of yeah. stuff that she couldn't eat, and she kind of looked at it and was like, what the hell am I meant to eat? Like, there's nothing.
0: So the genetic tests are the ones that are the most, you know, most well-founded at this point, but there are tests of all kinds of different things, but I will be very careful in believing claims at this point.
1: I think that's the, the, the challenging part that I'm finding, is it's, it's a very hard thing to, to navigate around. Mm. So I've been talking to many experts and exploring this idea of could I live forever? Can I become a cyborg? You know, just really just starting to, to explore the space. And it's like the more people I talk to, the more confused I am about everything.
0: That's not a bad thing because uh... What you don't want is someone who finds an idea and latches onto it, and that's the answer to everything. So confusion is good, it's uncomfortable, but it means that you're getting a lot of different opinions that may be conflicting, and it takes some time to sort that out. I think one thing that's really needed you know, not in, not just in this area, but anywhere in life is critical thinking. The ability to ask the right questions as to why should I believe what you're saying versus this person? Because you know, this field obviously is very complex, a lot of conflicting views. And especially people selling products are going to tend to be biased towards what they're selling you. So how do you know, you know whether to believe them or not? You can't just reject everything, but you've got to be pretty careful in what you do agree to.
1: Yes. I think curiosity is one of my massive values in life. And that's actually why I'm producing this documentary and how I got so into learning about transhumanism and cryonics and all of these, and longevity and all of these kind of topics. Because at the end of the day, the way that I see it is the world will evolve. Technology evolves exponentially. And we either have two choices. We can either kind of stay back or we can explore and and experiment.
0: curiosity, I think, is a core characteristic of people interested in living longer because you know, I was just telling you, I think yesterday that I was writing this, uh, or publishing an essay I wrote back in the 90s on stagnation and people's fear that they get bored. I think people who are afraid they will get bored are just boring people, they don't have any curiosity, so they can't imagine how people can enjoy the next 50, 1000 million years, whereas people with curiosity say, well, there's lots to do, I can't imagine running out of ideas. So uh, I think it's, it's very critical to have that. When we talk about uh, biostasis or cryonics, that's one thing that characterizes people who choose to get themselves cryopreserved, is a sense of curiosity, they want to see what the future will be like uh, they're very curious about that. Many people don't really see the appeal of the future because they, well, they tend to be pessimistic for one thing. They, think they believe science fiction think it's going to be a terrible place, a Mad Max desolation or AI Terminator scenario, which highly implausible, I think but they also just don't have the imagination to think of what they're going to do. They kind of think, well, I'll be stuck in the same job for the next five million years. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous.
1: And tell us more about your cryonics facility. I really want to come to, it's in Arizona, isn't it?
0: Yes, well, I want to say my facility, I I actually uh, worked there for 12 years. I was president for almost 10 years, the longest of anybody there. It's been around for over 50 years now. Uh, Alcor is the largest cryonics organization right now with about uh, something over 200 patients, maybe up to 215 or so and around 1,500 members. That means people who have actually made the full arrangements to be cryopreserved financially and legally. Uh, That's been going since uh, 1972 it was founded. So quite a long track record. It's been hard recently to grow members. It seems to have slowed down for some reason, but uh, hopefully that'll pick back up. It's a very difficult thing to talk to people about because it's so complex. It has so many aspects, philosophical, technological, financial, legal, there's a lot of aspects. So it's not an easy thing to sell or to make people to understand. When I've talked about it many times in the past, people have often you know, assumed that I'm, I'm a charlatan or a fraud or something, and they say, oh, it's like trying to, you're trying to you know, sell us a, a quick fix, or this is an easy way of get-rich-quick scheme is their favorite phrase, which is kind of the opposite of reality because it's get, get slightly wealthy very, very slowly uh, with great difficulties, more like a good description. Because, you know, if you have, like, we're talking about um, uh, treatments that don't necessarily work, If you have a simple treatment with a simple answer, you can sell that to people who are are in need of it. But with cryonics, you've got to persuade people to overcome all these psychological barriers, social pressures, all kinds. It's the hardest thing in the world to sell people on or to get people to understand. I found that very frustrating. I think back to the um, 1980s, I, I was, my s- first television appearance ever actually in 1986, I was debating a professor of surgery from London and uh, about cryonics. He didn't know anything about the subject, but he was you know, poo-pooing it the whole time. And as we left the studio, he, he kind of turned to me and said, I'm sure you'll make lots of money. But he's the surgeon who makes lots of money. I'm not the person who made money. I'm, I'm doing it for the ideal and the principle of it.
1: So, walk me through how it works. So, say I want to get frozen, and I use, I, I love to do these little speech bubbles around it, because I know that we're not meant to say it's frozen. But, say I want to do this, like, how do I do it? Say I'm 60 years old, how does it work? Am I like lying there on some kind of, I don't know, am I still awake? Like, how does it happen?
0: So people generally make the arrangements well in advance. You don't want to leave this to the last minute. That's uh, very problematic. So for instance, I made arrangements back in 1986 and I kept mine. So if you leave it to the last minute, the problem is you have to make financial arrangements because obviously if cryonics organizations spend a lot of money and then you don't have the funding, it's going to endanger everybody. So most people arrange life insurance. That's the most common way to pay for it. Um, wealthy people may just better hand over you know, $200,000 in cash, but not most people do that. Uh, you've got to sign a whole bunch of contracts and show that you have... Uh, you know, informed an understanding of what you're doing. So generally, that's all in place well in advance. Uh, there's a number of different scenarios. Um, you know, if you're 60, then probably you're not dying of old age, so it's probably a heart attack or something like that. So let's take that scenario. You're in a hospital, you've had a heart attack. Uh, it looks like you don't have long to live. Uh, hopefully, they'll, they'll see the little either the card in your wallet or the tag that you carry around. Some people have a rumbler in their neck, I put mine here. There's a a number to call, an emergency and some basic instructions. And then the team will be deployed as rapidly as possible. There's teams in different states that can get to there as quickly as possible, uh, even internationally. And uh, they'll be hopefully stabilizing the patient so they don't go down too quickly. And then the goal is to arrive there before the person's declared legally dead. Now, it's very important to understand that legal death is not real death. Um, we, because or, or clinical death for that matter, legal death actually is just the doctor saying, "I declare you to be dead," which. You know, sometimes you could actually revive the person. They may have a do not revive order on them. So that's not really what death is. I and mean, clinical death isn't death either. Clinical death just means that your breathing and heart rate have stopped. But we know now, that since the 1960s, we have CPR and resuscitation techniques. We can bring people back from clinical death. So clinical death isn't really death. And that leads to some tricky issues, but we'll leave that for now as to what death is. But we want to get there as soon as legal death is being declared, because legally, we can't begin the process till that point. So then we're going to start cooling the patient immediately with external ice, uh, circulate the icy water around the patient to accelerate the cooling. We're going to uh, administer a bunch of medications to protect the cells. So some of those will be antacids, which acids will be produced, Uh, membrane stabilizers, things to maintain blood pressure, uh, anti-clotting agents, that kind of thing. So then we can transport the patient. Oh, also another thing is going to put on a heart-lung machine so you start taking over the patient's breathing, uh, a respirator so they keep breathing. So it looks peculiar to people in the hospital that you're treating the person if they're still alive, because as far as we're concerned, they're not dead. Uh, they're still you know, they're kind of a state where they're beginning to die and we want to pause that process. That's the whole idea is to pause the dying process. There is no line where you're suddenly dead. It's just a process. So at that point, you'll be uh, transported to the facility. Again, there's different variations. But once you reach the place like Alcor, uh, in the operating room, a surgeon will, let's say as a whole body patient, they'll open up the chest, do basically a median stenotomy, access the major blood vessels of the heart. Uh, Cannulate those, then they're going to connect that to a, a pump and chiller system and remove as much of the blood and bodily fluids as possible. Because, you know, you talked about freezing, we actually don't want to freeze the patient, we want to vitrify, which means that we replace the blood and other water with Uh, a solution that, when you go below freezing, doesn't freeze, it doesn't form ice crystals, it just gets thicker and thicker and holds all the cells in place. And that's known as vitrification, from the Latin word, for glass. It's kind of a glassy block. So that doesn't have any sharp edges from ice crystals, it just kind of holds everything in place. And then uh, the patient's taken down to minus 320 Fahrenheit or minus 196 Celsius. And at that point, nothing is changing, there's no metabolism, you can wait for 100 years, you would be as fresh as one, one day.
1: Fresh as a daisy.
0: Pretty much, yeah. A chilled daisy, yes.
1: A chilled daisy.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's interesting. Okay, so then then that process is done, and then how do they look in the facility? Because when I picture this in my head, I just picture a whole bunch of bodies on display, but I'm sure it's no, not like no. that.
0: No, what what you'll see is very large metal canisters, stainless steel canisters, like 10, 11, 12 feet tall. Um, they'll contain maybe four whole body patients. Well, actually there's different models. The newer ones uh, can take 10 or 11 whole body patients. Some members just choose to preserve the brain and you can get far more of those, but you don't see anything because that's, you're encased first of all in a sleeping bag, uh, which soaks up the liquid nitrogen in case you have to be transferred. Then you're in a metal pod, which protects the whole body. And then you're inside another steel, steel, steel canister. So you can't see anything. It's not like in the science fiction movies or TV shows where you see like a, a frosty face behind a panel. It's nothing like that, unfortunately. <laughs>
1: it's, yeah, funny to sort of think. I do hope one day I can I can come and have a look. It would be so fascinating to see. Okay, and then how long do we think? So, obviously, the technology is developing. We have eggs these days that we can... Uh, what's the process called again? When vitrify, or vitrify. Or just cryopreserve. Yeah, or yeah. cryopreserve. So, people who are having, like, IVF and things like this. What do we need to do in order to get to the point that we're reviving the, the humans that we have preserved. Right.
0: Well, as you said, we can, we can already cryopreserve, uh, uh, reversibly cryopreserve things like sperm, eggs, embryos, uh, corneas, heart valves, many different kinds of tissues. The challenge is as you go from single tissues to like organs, let alone to whole organisms, you have a problem that you have to rewarm at a certain very rapid rate. Uh, it may seem peculiar, but as you warm, ice crystals can actually reform and that can do a lot of damage. So you have to rewarm very rapidly. I mean like tens of degrees per second. Uh, So that is something we can't do for large bodies of tissue yet, but obviously we're making progress. So as to when we'll better do that, we can't really say. We just know that we're making progress. You know, we can do more and more tissue types. We're getting larger amounts. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, it was announced that uh, at University of Minnesota, they had successfully and repeatedly cryopreserved rat kidneys and then reversed that and implanted them and they functioned well. So we know it's going to happen. Wow. It's a matter of when. And there isn't, you know, people say, well, give me a give me a year when we'll bring people back. That's not possible for several reasons. One is there won't be any one date because patients are in very different condition. Imagine someone cryopreserved in the 1970s with not very good technology then they'll probably take long to be repaired. Maybe they won't be repairable or it'll take more advanced technology. Also, circumstances vary. I talked about a situation where you're right there at the hospital, right at the time, no delay. That doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes someone dies in their sleep. They're not being monitored. They may be you know, clinically dead for several hours before they're discovered. There's gonna be a lot more damage done. That may take more technology to repair. So there isn't gonna be one date and I, I don't really wanna give a date because it's uh, all predictions are, are false. <laughs> they never come out right. But I would imagine uh, on the most super optimistic optimistic end of things. Um, like 30 or 40 years seems to be very optimistic. It you know, would depend on, probably on AI accelerating things. It could take 100 years. I mean, it's really, we're just guessing. We really don't know. We just know it's going to happen one day.
1: That's fascinating. And I'm, I guess you have signed up. Yeah,
0: since 1986. I mean, a long, long time. I signed up when I was 23 years old, basically as a no, 22 years old. Uh, not because I was expecting to need it, but really as a statement, this is something sensible. We should do this. And so do it by example, right?
1: And when was the first person who went through this process?
0: Dr. James Bedford, he was an occupational psychologist in California. He was cryopreserved in 1967, and he's still actually maintained by Alcor. He, he was taken over as a charity case because there was no real funding, it wasn't arranged. You know, the very first case, it wasn't properly arranged, but he was taken on as a charity case and is still there. He's actually, if you count him as not dead, but you know, still persisting, he's the oldest surviving human being in history at this point.
1: And what about Walt Disney? Is this a conspiracy that, that he's done this process?
0: No, that's one of the myths. There's a couple of myths about cryonics. That's, that's the most common one. I'm not quite sure how that arose. I think what happened was, at the time Walt Disney died, there was also a cryonics story in the press, and somehow that was, got mixed up. And kind of understandably, because Walt Disney was, you know, Tomorrowland and Future World, so you'd expect him to do this, right? It's a very natural idea. But in fact, he's buried, buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery. So unfortunately, he won't be coming back.
1: Regarding your thoughts on death. So this is obviously a very complicated topic. And I was reading a book recently called After by Dr. Grayson, Dr. Mm -hmm. Bruce Grayson. He essentially shared stories of people who had been on the operating table and died and then been brought back to life. He was potentially having a conversation with someone down a hallway. And this person who was apparently dead overheard the story saw he had like a stain on his top like all of these little details which the fact that they were on the operating table they could not have frankly have seen which makes me really wonder about yeah like our our soul and things like this and I had posted a, a post on LinkedIn recently saying that I would like to be preserved by cryonics should the the time come maybe when I'm 70 or 80 or something like this and there's not an opportunity for me to live forever or at least extend my life and people were saying all sorts of things to me like oh you have an ego you just want to live for the sake of yourself and Uh, you need to make way for other people on the planet. And people were being quite aggressive Mm -hmm, to me. I was getting quite picked on. And I was just like, wow, this is a really complicated topic. Of course, you've got the spirituality side of things. You've got people who believe in life after death. You've got religion that plays into this. And part of me wonders that if I went through this process, bearing in mind the book that I read by Dr. Bruce Grayson, what happens if like my soul is like hanging around the room for like a thousand years just waiting?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about that. First of all, the kind of uh, stories you're talking about, I've looked into those and I don't think there are any credible cases of people actually able to see things they couldn't have seen. Now, when you're on a hospital table, even if you're clinically dead, again, you're not completely gone. So you could hear things that you could remember later on. That's quite possible. Um, I haven't actually seen any validated cases of someone who. You know, observe something they couldn't really have observed or found out in some way. If you if you believe in a soul, I personally don't believe in a soul. I'm a materialist, I think we're physical beings, my myself isn't embodied in my brain functions. But um, I, I don't think the idea of a soul is a problem because if you think about it, we already have people walking around today who are once cryopreserved for months, sometimes years, as embryos. Uh, most people believe that you know, if there is a soul, it starts at the point of conception. So if that's the case, these cryopreserved embryos had souls for sometimes a long time. There are twins that have been born like 10 years apart. So one has been cryo for 10 years. They don't say, oh, it was really boring before I was born. They don't report that. We also have people who've been clinically dead for many minutes, even an hour or more. And again, on the idea that there's a point of death where the soul leaves the body, well, they don't report a problem. They don't report floating around being bored. Uh, So my view is if there is a soul, it's something we haven't found. So it's not something in space and time. It's not part of the scientific worldview. So It must be outside space and time, in which case time doesn't really matter. So whether it's a minute or an hour or a hundred years really doesn't make a difference. So I personally don't think there is a soul, but if there is, I don't really see that as a problem for cryonics. Now, it's interesting what you said, though, that this person gets very upset when you start talking about this and start accusing you of selfishness because you want to live. Oh, my goodness, how terrible are you to want to live? It's because you're challenging some fundamentals of their worldview, and it's making them go into a very defensive position. And we see this a lot with life extension and, and cryonics. They're challenging some very fundamental worldviews, and people get very upset, and. You know get back in and get hostile and say oh you just to, you know you're just selfish and well is it selfish to want to live i mean if you're saying well we should be replaced by the next generation why don't you go die right now so that's the one else come by i mean it's very hypocritical the same people accuse you of wasting money but they'll spend money uh you know on very expensive holidays is that more important than living uh, at the end of life people spend huge amounts of money just to buy a few extra days or weeks of miserable life and nobody criticizes that we're talking about something where if it succeeds you've got an indefinite period of time so i think Yeah, if you look at it rationally, these arguments are just ludicrous. They're rationalizations, but the reason is you're challenging fundamental worldviews that makes people very unpopular, very uncomfortable. And again, they tend to have, uh, I think, mistaken ideas of what death is and, you know, what personal continuity is. I will say to people, if they do believe in an afterlife, you know, a religious kind of afterlife, does it really make a difference if you have to wait a bit longer? I mean, maybe that's actually God's plan, right? Isn't it selfish to go hustling off to, to get your reward in heaven when you can stay here and do good works and save souls? So really, you can turn around that argument on them and say they're being selfish by hurrying off to their heavenly reward. But actually in Christianity the majority view uh, is that when you die you're not you don't go to heaven right away the majority view is actually you stay kind of you don't exist and then when the saviour comes back you'll be physically resurrected that's actually the standard line the idea that your soul leaves the body is actually kind of a modern heresy in Christianity. I know this because I taught philosophy of religion.
1: Interesting yeah I I think it's exactly what you say when when people are when you're talking about these sorts of things people when they find out about death, it's almost such a horrifying thing to wrap your head around. So once they finally get through that, any time you give them a little possibility or a little nugget or challenge their worldview, as they say, they do get quite hostile in things.
0: And you know what, the reason why that is, it's not just because you're challenging their worldview, it's because their worldview is based in certainty. People don't like uncertainty. They want to be certain about things. So they either want to be certain that they uh, go to an afterlife or they want to be certain that when they're dead, that's it, there's nothing else to worry about, it's the end. If you say, well, no, there's a chance that you might better continue and things could be drastically different in the future, that's really uncomfortable because they've already settled on one certainty or the other. And we, you know, humans in general don't like uncertainty. So people like us who are interested in, you know, living longer into a future which we don't really know what's going to be like, it's unpredictable, that takes a certain kind of courage and uh, willingness to endure ambiguity and uncertainty. But most people just really don't like that. And that's what you're doing is challenging this, their certainties.
1: I think it's really interesting. And I think even these days it's become even worse. People are almost very black and white with their thinking. You even see this in regards to like politics and things like this. It's kind of like I'm here, you're here, you know. Whereas I'm a big believer that we should always listen to everything. We we shouldn't stay so stagnant in our thoughts. Mm -hmm. We should listen to all kinds of different experts and people with opposing views. And we should listen to Mm -hmm. different views from what we have from ourselves as well. Because even just thinking to my my background and my thoughts and worldview that I've had over the years, I look back to what I used to think back when I was in my twenties and I'm like, Oh my God, things that I thought I was super concrete in my thoughts have changed now. And I'm sure they'll keep changing. I look back and think, Hey, you were wrong back then. I wasn't necessarily wrong, but that's just what I had thought in that, in that time. So I think more people should be doing this. I think more people should open up the idea. And as you said, kind of, be brave and and live in that ambu- ambiguity
0: I think the problem is that people tend to identify themselves with their beliefs. And so when you tell them that a belief is wrong, they take it as a personal affront. But our language reflects that. If I disagree with something, I'll say, you're wrong. I don't say what you said was wrong, or that idea, I I'll say, you're wrong. So I, you're negating my whole self when you say that. And that's t- that tends to be how we talk. So rather than personalizing beliefs, I think we have to get used to the idea that we're gonna change our ideas over time. That's not who we are. Now who we are should be a process, a process of learning and improvement and growth. So you don't have to be so defensive about your current beliefs. So what, okay, I've just learned something. Thank you. For showing me I was wrong because I've learned something, I'm wiser now. But that's a hard attitude for people to adopt, especially the way they're taught. And you know, we're, we're taught things in school, this is the knowledge, learn it, repeat it back. You're not really taught really to think for yourself or to be critical or creative in your thinking. That's unfortunately not a large part of the educational system.
1: Oh yeah, they don't. I, f- I feel like they don't teach you a, a lot of things in school which would be very helpful for you to know, such as how to manage your money and yes, investing. Perhaps. Instead we're being told what five plus five is and now we just use a blimmin' calculator mm-hmm. for it. I think there's a lot of really Interesting things here and I think a big part of of what you do and longevity and life extension and things like this is it just does not get enough airtime. I think a lot of people talk about things that aren't necessarily important. I just think of the media, I think about their sensationalist headlines and Oh, they talk about, I don't know, reality TV people and and things like this, but but not really things that I think personally are are very meaningful. I think that governments aren't doing enough in, in these sorts of spaces. I was reading statistics about how many trillions they are putting towards nuclear bombs and the small, tiny, little mere millions that they put towards funding longevity and life extension Uh, projects, Mm. like how can we start to get these people in governments and people with money, like how can we start to get people more involved in these sorts of things?
0: Well, I think government's pretty hopeless. I wouldn't really look to government because they're the last people to, to wake up to things. Um, I think you know, we are starting to see a shift of, of thinking, especially in the area of life extension. Uh, as we're seeing at this conference, a lot of interest and in it's you know, a lot of universities are looking into this, a lot of private foundations. So I think there is a shift, but we're facing a real problem in that, you know we already talked about polarization of views, the news, works are like that. It's very polarised, and it's also very catastrophic in its coverage. The news is constantly talking about catastrophes, imaginary ones. We're always told that the wool is about to come to an end from some reason or another. The latest thing is the climate catastrophe, where supposedly the wool is going to end very soon. We've seen this throughout history, right? But we're actually pretty good at solving problems. Uh, so as long as we're occupied with these catastrophes, uh, we're not going to think about the positive possibilities. So the real problem is, is there are obviously very strong incentives in the media to highlight the most grabbing, catastrophic headlines. You don't really hear about all the great stuff that's going on, which is another reason people are so unhappy and pessimistic, because they think the world is going to hell because that's what they're being told all the time. If one person gets murdered in across the world, you'll hear about that. You won't hear about someone who helped someone out of the river or someone who created a cure for something. We rarely hear that stuff unless you read specialist you know, scientific publications or you know, futurist publications. So that's a real problem. and. Uh, yeah, we, we've seen increasing rates of depression and anxiety, uh, especially in the USA and other countries, because people are being fed all this catastrophic stuff all the time, and they're not getting around to thinking creatively about the future, life extension, improving the world. They're so terrified that the world's coming to an end.
1: I think back in the day, we used to be able to just put the newspaper down, mm-hmm. whereas these days with social media, we're constantly fed this fear. Yeah. And as you said, fear sells. This is why fear creates clicks, clicks create revenue. And this is why the media do it. Gosh, I even just think about myself and how every now and again with all of the research that I do, I end up going down this giant rabbit hole and then I get all concerned and conflicted and worried about the future. And I always have to remind myself at the end of the day that if I take myself to this kind of place, then I can't give to the community, my family, my friends. And at the end of the day, even if I solve all the conspiracy theories, if I solve all the ideas about the future, I'm still stuck at the same place at the end of the day with my family and friends to care for. So I I think it's very interesting.
0: I think you've really got to make an effort to seek out different sources of news. You really, the best thing for your mental health is just don't watch TV news at all, because it's just, Awful, the worst stuff. It really distorts your worldview, and people have actually shown this very clearly that it's completely inaccurate. So you really have to kind of search out good sources of information, which actually it, blogs are a good way to do that. And it takes a bit more effort to read good blogs because people go into more detail. But there's a lot of really good writing as to what's actually going on in the world. That's you know tends to be a lot more optimistic, even when it deals with negative things. You get a lot more understanding out of it. That standard media is just a horrible place to get information, as is Twitter, which becomes a ho- hostile battleground. So I'd recommend you know going out looking for you know futurist transhumanist publications. and and forums where you hear more about the positive stuff that's going on.
1: What kind of blogs do you enjoy reading? I know that you mentioned you quite enjoy Substack, what kind of publications? You know, I
0: read dozens and dozens of blogs on Substack. There are so many good ones. Uh, I've been reading a lot of stuff uh, about artificial intelligence recently because obviously it's a big topic today with the latest catastrophe. Right now, AI is going to kill us. <laughs> climate or AI or nuclear weapons is always something. So currently people are freaking about AI. So I've been reading a lot about that and AI safety and replying to a lot of these uh, discussions that we should shut down AI. I think that's a really bad idea.
1: Why do you think it's a bad idea?
0: Well, because I, uh, People talk about the existential risk of AI, the idea that AI could destroy all of humanity. My view is that we're already facing an existential risk individually, one by one, everybody's going to die unless we solve the problem of aging. So we already have a huge catastrophic problem that we have to solve. AI is probably our best bet at solving that in time for us to continue living. So if you stop AI, you're basically stopping a huge source of technological progress, which could save lives and make lives much better. But that doesn't really get mentioned very much. It's always, you know, the theoretical downside of an extreme science fiction scenario means we should stop everything. But that's not the way technological progress and problem solving work. This is a very kind of Plato, uh, Platonistic idea of problem solving where you sit in an armchair and you just reason out all the problems with AI and create all the solutions before you do anything. That just doesn't work. You have to move forward and experiment and try things. And as problems come up, you tackle them. You can't predict those in advance. That whole way of thinking is is really uh, hopeless.
1: Sometimes I wonder if there's a lot of progress with AI and robotics. I was reading, well, actually, my, my director of uh, comms in New York was telling me about these robots that have to get chained during the night because if not, they go out and destroy things. Really? Apparently, they're, they're very powerful. And um, part of me wonders if we're having so much progress on the robotics and the AI side of things and we're not doing enough to evolve ourselves. That we're here in our little organic meat sack, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But are we looking enough into things such as neural links? Like are we, is things such as funding and clinical trials and things like this kind of halting our progress mm-hmm. so that maybe one day things like the robotics and the AI have developed so fast and they're, they're doing all of these crazy things and then here we're, we're kind of held back. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're doing enough as humans to evolve
0: with the technology well no i don't and it's you know it's good that you brought that up because you know, i'm known as a transhumanist as you know one of the creators of transhumanism and a core part of that is improving the human being that uh, we can improve external technologies whether it's ai or other things they can develop very fast they're not limited by biology now the problem is yes we want to improve ourselves but how do we do that it's difficult because You know, the the transcendental meditation people say, well, if 5% of the world would meditate, everything would, well, I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, Because you can't really change your brain just by thinking about it. You can alter your thinking, you can alter your mood to a certain degree, but there's biochemical pathways in there that you didn't choose to put there. So some people suffer from depression and anxiety that you know they're basically born with. It's very hard to shake that. You can't just say, cheer up, that doesn't doesn't work. You may have to have, you know, drug treatments, which are still very crude. So I think, yeah, we should do a lot more, um, you know, direct brain computer interfaces might be one way of changing the way you think, Uh, but I think eventually we have to get into the human brain and start tinkering with it. Now, it might sound scary to people, but just think about it, you've been given a brain that you have no control over, Uh, don't you want a bit of fine-tune it so that, for instance, you can modify your emotions? If you have a lot of rage, maybe you want to tune that down. Uh, maybe you want to better focus better. Like certain times you want to focus on creativity, other times you want to enjoy sex. Those are very different things. You can't maybe do them at the same time. Maybe you turn down one dial and turn up the other. Uh, maybe you're not kind of the person you want to be, and it's hard to will yourself into that state. Maybe we can change some pathways. For instance, we know very well that the way we evolve uh, affects the way we understand our emotions. We don't understand emotions well at all. Because we're used to situations where I see a tiger coming out, a saber tooth tiger, that goes into my eyeballs, it affects my brain. I it, that sets my amygdala off, I feel fear, fear drives me to run, right? That's how I survive. So we all have that kind of fight or flight reflex. Uh, it did not evolve to deal with complex problems in complex societies. Our, our brains have not changed since we created civilization. So we're still having that saber-tooth avoidance factor in a very complex situation. So clearly our brains are way outdated.
1: Which is also driven by these cheap dopamine hits that we get mm-hmm. from our phone. I think a lot of people yeah. are continually now in the state of fight and flight.
0: Yeah, they're finding mostly imaginary things to feel fight or fight about. And so, yeah, they're constantly getting pinged by upsetting things, and it's very hard to think clearly when that's going on. I think it's important to detach from uh, all these kind of annoying, impinging bits of information and, uh, you know, put aside the newspapers, put aside Twitter, just, just sit read a book for a while, go meditate, go out into nature. Uh, that's, you know, so that's the old, old uh, advice, but I think it applies even more today because you have to have your own space. But I think eventually we're going to have to actually re-engineer the human brain. And I have to be careful in saying that because some people have a misconception. They think that transhumans are saying that we should design everybody's brains for them. No, no, it's not what we're saying at all. Uh, I, I came up with something I call the principle of morphological freedom, which basically says you have the right to choose how your brain works and how long you live and how you alter your biology. It's a fundamental right. It's your body, your mind. You decide. So I'm not talking about some kind of government plan to tell us how to think. Absolutely not. I'm totally against that. Um, but we are stuck with these three-pound pieces of meat that are not that good at thinking and not well-suited to the future. So, eventually, it's not just AI and other technologies that have to evolve, it's our brain itself, and that's something we're gonna to have to think about a lot more.
1: And I really enjoyed your book, written by yourself and Natasha Vitamore too. The transhumanist, the transhumanist reader. reader I thought was excellent. And tell us more about what being a transhumanist really is. What does it mean?
0: Well, I like to think of, uh, you know, being a philosopher by background, I I like to think of transhumans as the success of the humanism, because humanism, enlightened humanism, which came along with you know, the beginning of science and progress, basically said that whether or not there's a God, we can't expect a higher power to do everything for us. We're here to, to create our own lives and to make the world better. So it's really the view that we can understand the world if we work at it. So we have science, science actually tells us stuff. We can make progress. If we act with goodwill and scientific knowledge, we can make the world a better place. Uh, so it's based on kind of reason and progress and goodwill. So transhumanism is an outgrowth of that because humanism is, you know, it's humanism, and we're not going to stay human forever. We're already uh, we already talk about the limits of humanity. So transhumanism is the idea that we can take these values further, understanding that we can make some fundamental changes in human nature. That's why it's not humanism, because if we're talking about living indefinitely, that's not something that humans have done. That's something fundamentally new. If we're talking about changing the architecture of the brain in a way that our genes can't do, that's going beyond human. So that's why. It's transhumanism. I sometimes divide it between transhumanism and transhumanism. So the transhumanism implies going beyond human as a primary thing, but also transhumanism focuses more on the philosophical and value side of it. So it's a worldview that basically at its core says we have the opportunity and ability to to change human nature fundamentally for the better uh, by applying intelligence and goodwill.
1: I think it's fascinating. And I think the more I started exploring transhumanism and reading your literature and getting people's views and opinions and things. I I just think it really does align with my core values in the sense of it's all about exploring, being curious. We have control of our future. We can take steps. To
0: some extent, yeah. We can try and guide ourselves. Yeah, we can guide ourselves. Exactly
1: right. Rather than having a kind of passive approach to life, thinking that perhaps the world owes us something and the world does all these things to us. like We can, we can take action, essentially. Well, tell us a little bit more about yeah, like life on Mars and things like this. I know that one of the values that transhumanists have is space exploration. Would
0: you go to Mars? No, I'm actually not interested in Mars. I don't quite see see the appeal of Mars. It's a bit
1: dusty, isn't it? Yeah, I mean,
0: (laughs) it doesn't really have any advantages over Earth particularly. The main reason I want to go into space, and I've been a space enthusiast since I was very young. I watched the Apollo 11 landing when I was five years old and all the Apollos till 1972 when they finished them, even though it meant staying up till maybe three in the morning. So I've always been fascinated. And of course, there's a long period of time in between where we didn't do anything. It was very frustrating. And now finally we're seeing a new efflorescence of space travel. So that's great. But to me, it's not just the cool thing about being in space, which is pretty cool to look back on the planet and to see the vast frontier out there. What really excites me about it is it's an open frontier where we can have new social experimentation. Like right now, I don't see any society I really like that much. There's a lot of problems in every society, every economy, every way of governance. Uh, I think there are better ways of doing things. But there's nowhere we can go on this planet to have an experiment because it's all claimed by governments. So just like back you know, a few hundred years ago, people who felt religious oppression or didn't like the way society worked could leave Europe and come to America and start new experiments. And there were a lot of radical experiments early on. Uh, We can't do that today, but if we can get into space, we can suddenly have a whole explosion of social experimentation. It's kind of like a scientific method. We can let societies evolve, see which ones work and which don't, and we can move between them. So I think evolution will actually speed up the rate of social progress. Right now it doesn't really do that. So to me that's kind of the exciting part. We can essentially have a framework where we have some very basic rules so you can leave one colony to go to another, but each colony can do exactly what it wants. It can be like a, a Marxist colony, you can have a vegetarian colony, you can have a libertarian colony, anarchist colony, whatever. Let them all try different things and see which one works out and uh, that will really speed things up. Because right now everybody's kind of Everything's very bureaucratic. There's not really a lot of difference between societies in the West. I mean, they're all fairly similar on a fundamental level. We're not able to really shake things up anymore. That's what kind of scares me about staying on the planet. Bureaucracies tend to keep growing and growing because that's in their interests. Everything gets more and more regulated and I think we have to get off planet before we can really shake things up and try something new.
1: And what about the metaverse? Obviously, it was such a huge buzzword last year and I actually spent 48 hours nonstop in virtual reality and metaverse platforms. I slept in virtual reality. I, I went into this sleeping room that other people were sleeping in. So you can kind of hear people sleeping around you. It's it's, it's a bit weird. <laughs> I, I don't know why people would do that unless they were doing an experiment like me. But uh, in your book, The Transhumanist Reader, you've been talking about the metaverse since like the 1980s, the 1990s, like this is not a new topic for you. What was your thoughts about all of this hype that came around last year? What's your thoughts about the metaverse?
0: Well, the term the metaverse has been around for a lot longer than the current usage. It's kind of been taken by one company right now, but it's it's been around for a long time. Uh, Neil Stevenson wrote about what he called the metaverse back in the way back in the early nineties, I think it was in the book called Snow Crash, which everybody should read. It's a great, very entertaining novel uh, of the kind of the near future. To me, the appeal of that is, it, it, um, you know, I talked about how we need to get into space to experiment, but actually there's another possibility, which is virtual worlds. Now, they're still limited because you still have to have your servers in the physical world, which other people can take control of. But it does allow more experimentation. If you can go into a virtual world, uh, you can have different virtual communities. They can have their own experiments, their own rules. So that actually is kind of a frontier, not entirely as free as going into space, but it's obviously something we can do today. So to me, that's the big appeal. And of course, you can, um, it's very transhumanist in the sense that you can go in and choose your virtual body and how you express yourself, which is something might be physically hard to do in the physical world. I
1: love that aspect about it. You can just show up and be as fantastic. As you want to be yeah. in virtual reality,
0: yeah. Which is probably good uh, training for when we can actually do that physically, and maybe you know shift our brain into different bodies, maybe download our, our minds into different forms. You might, I mean, I kind of have the idea of one day I could download my mind into some kind of a, you know shark body or a very efficient swimming body where I can spend time in the ocean. So like that would be so fun, like a dolphin. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like don't know if I'd be a shark going around and like well, eating d- and attacking d- No,
0: no, not for that. But, <laughs> but they
1: would be cool. <laughs> I do
0: think a shark, because they're so efficient, you know, they, they're really good at what they do. But, uh, you know, a dolphin is probably a better. <laughs> I
1: don't <laughs> know. Shark's <laughs> kind of cool now that I think about it. You just probably have to get past the the, the, the attacking, the meat-eating side of things, though. Well, it should be the, interesting.
0: Well, the downside of a shark, also is they have to keep moving all the time or else they die. So they even keep moving while they're sleeping. Uh, do- yeah, dolphins are a lot better because they're a lot more cheerful and <laughs> fun.
1: <laughs> So you talked a bit about mind uploading, and this is something that I think is getting chucked around on Reddit so much these days. Everyone's talking about mind uploading. You've got the people who are totally hyping it up, and then you've got the people who are like doomsday sort of thing. I think that's, it's like that on all platforms on Reddit. But tell me a bit about your thoughts about mind uploading.
0: Hans Morovic wrote about that uh, you know, back in the 1980s. So this isn't a new idea. It's been around for a while. The basic idea is that... Uh, Who you are is essentially brain activity. So your memories are stored in your neural connections, um, and at some point it might be possible to scan a brain at such a fine level of resolution that you can essentially emulate yourself in software. So you can either transfer yourself to a different platform uh, or make copies of yourself even. So basically the idea is you could leave your biological self and become something based on silicon or optoelectronics or whatever, some different platform that's not biological, doesn't decay, where you can make backup copies of yourself. So even if you get completely destroyed, You can just, you know, pick up from your last backup, maybe from yesterday, and all you've lost is a few memories from the last 24 hours or so. So it's got a lot of advantages. And of course, if you're in software, we no longer have to deal with human biology. We can maybe make changes a lot more easily. Uh, So all all this idea of improving the way you think and fine-tuning your emotions, we don't have to deal with the pathways that biology has devised. We'll actually better change this more easily. So it opens up a whole new world. Um, It's... uh, There's a lot of appeal to it, uh, especially the idea of making backups where you really can't die. Like even if the sun exploded, if you have a backup in a different planetary system, you'll still be able to survive. Where's
1: that hard drive? (laughs) Where's my backup? But some people say that mind uploading after mind uploading you're essentially not yourself they say it's it's just a version of you it's a copy of you what's your thoughts about uh, that
0: that's a complicated issue. I actually wrote my my doctoral dissertation on that topic so wow. uh, I have a lot a lot on that um, I think one thing we have to think of what what really is the self first of all people don't really think about that very much they they think they're this body or their set of beliefs I think essentially what you are is your your psychology over time so one of the philosophers who thought about this a lot, John Locke, back a few centuries ago, he said you're the chain of memories over time. So you remember most of what you remember yesterday, yesterday's memories were pretty much the same as the ones before. So you have kind of a chain of memory connections over time, as long as you have that, you're the same person. I think he got it basically right, but it's not just memory, for instance, our dispositions, uh, the ways we tend to react to things, it's not really a memory as such, but that's a very important part of who you are, it's your values, right? You you can kind of, if I know who you are, I can predict how you respond in various situations based on your values. That's not a memory. psychological connectedness over time and that is not something that depends on the specific body so i could i mean obviously uh, atoms change over time uh, cells change over anything from hours to to months so later in life you don't have a single atom left pretty much that you had early on in life so we know it's not the atoms it's not even the cells that matter we could uh, in principle change out each of my neurons for a mechanical component that did the same job and at the end of it i think i'd still be the same person now with uploading it's a little more tricky because yeah you can make one you could transferred your brain into software, that's not so bad because you've got a single individual, so maybe you can say, okay, that's me. But if you take my brain and scan it and make two copies, or have a backup copy, you get worried because, well, but, you know, I'm person A, I become B and C, but B and C are different individuals, aren't they? Well, yes, but uh, what that shows is identity doesn't matter. You, you, the logical identity is broken down, but. You've still survived, you still continue, you just become two people now. And they're they're different from each other, they want to each survive individually, but one person has become two. We we see that with amoebas and other forms that can divide, but we're not used to that with human minds. But to me, that's not a matter of losing yourself, it's a matter of you've you've duplicated yourself, which I wouldn't do in practice because you have to fight over against my wife and and my house and my dog, (laughs) so there's a lot of practical (laughs) problems with that.
1: You'd have to share. (laughs) But what about if you did divide yourself? And then over time, because you're these two different versions, these two different versions. So say I had one version that was living in New York and then say my other version was living in Dubai. And that would actually be great because I often feel like I have to be in two places at once. I've got my businesses in Dubai and New York. And, but over time, these two different beings would have different experiences. So surely we'd start at the same spot, but then over time we might become two different people with two very different values.
0: So my view is if I made two copies of myself, you know, if my original brain was destroyed in the uploading process and there was two of me, if one of those is destroyed immediately, there's not much loss because they're pretty much identical. But as you say, over time, they're going to diverge a lot. And then it's not a comfort if one survives because it's become a different person. But you can imagine that we might spin off uh, co- copies of ourselves temporarily, like more partial personalities that can handle certain tasks but aren't our full self. And then we could maybe reintegrate those a few days later or a few weeks later. But the longer you go and the more divergent, the harder it will be to integrate that.
1: And the more you'll have to fight over your wife and your dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: But I think the idea of partial personalities, uh, people are starting to kind of understand that because now with AI, we can develop personal agents who may learn from us and actually act like we would. So it's not very, futuristic anymore to say we may have personal agents that act exactly like I do. They pick up the phone, answer the, the phone for me, maybe do certain jobs that I don't have to do, but they're acting just like I do. So we can imagine more sophisticated versions that actually maybe kind of are me, but then we can reintegrate those into ourselves.
1: It's kind of fascinating, really. And as you were talking about values before, it made me think about how humans at the end of the day, we're almost like a little bit of an algorithm, really, aren't we? I'm sure Facebook, with all of our data that it has on us, I'm sure it could even predict our decisions more than what we probably even could for ourselves. Well, we're not
0: very good at understanding why we do things, so we can maybe predict what we do based on the past, but uh, we're very bad at, understanding why we do things. Psychologists have shown this, they've done experiments where you can actually show that people will will give an explanation for why they did something, but you can actually experimentally demonstrate that that can't have been the real reason. So we actually make up reasons. So we do something, and then we invent a story to explain why we did it. And the reason is we don't really understand what's going on in our minds. We. We have this kind of Cartesian view from, you know, René Descartes, who thought that the mind was this kind of unified single thing that you could understand, it was transparent. It's not like that at all. It's a bunch of different evolutionary parts that have, it's kind of a kludge over time, That parts that don't really interoperate that clearly. So we may have feelings, you know, like, again, anxiety and depression, and we say, well, why am I feeling this? And you don't really know. And again, going back to the evolutionary development of the brain, that's because we, again, we develop this tendency to see something react and then emote to it we don't really know we don't need to know why we just do it so we have these pathways going from the emotional centers like the amygdala to the cognitive centers that make us behave but we don't have many pathways going in reverse so you can't really introspect very well you can't understand why you're feeling something you can try and figure it out that's why you go to psychotherapist sometimes why am i doing this i can't stop it i don't understand it Well, you don't have any direct access to your your emotions. So that's one thing we could greatly improve, I think, by building new neural pathways. You don't need uploading. We can actually biologically re-engineer the brain to put new pathways in that would make us have better self-understanding. And I think with better self-understanding, we'd have better empathy with other people as well.
1: I think it's also fascinating. And obviously, I can continue talking for such a long time with you, but there's one thing that I, I want to sort of finish on. So for anybody watching this, say they want to get into cryonics, how can they participate and get involved and sign up?
0: Uh, Well, you can check out the various cryonics organisations. There's the the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, Alcor.org is the one I've been involved with for a long time. There's the Cryonics Institute in Michigan. Uh, There's a very promising new one, well, relatively new one in Europe, Tomorrow Biostasis, they can check that out. If you're in Europe, that's probably your best bet. Um, you might also take a look at the uh, organizational blog at biostasis.substack.com, where we discuss a lot of the current research and, and directions in that. Uh, also, hold out for my book. I'm writing a book on cryonics because I'm, I keep thinking, well, what book can I recommend? And there isn't one. So I said, well, I better write it then. So hopefully, <laughs> sometime next year, there will be a book out on cryonics and biostasis.
1: And what about transhumanism? How can people get involved and learn more about that?
0: Uh, by the Transhumanist Reader is a good start. We, it's we, an excellent
1: right, book. We, excellent. We, we
0: created that precisely to be a kind of a comprehensive overview. So it's got some classic essays, you know, from the '90s and, and earlier. Um, on a lot of these main topics, including stuff that was way ahead of its time. Uh, you know, we, we foresaw digital money and cryptocurrencies way before Personally. other people. For instance, uh, a lot of things we were saying back then, people thought were crazy, and today is like normal stuff now. So, um, we have a few few things like that to boast of. But it's a good historical book, but it also has um, new essays as well. So it's a good way to get started. Um, my personal blog, Maxmore.substack.com. I have a lot of transhumanist writings on there. I'm actually republishing some stuff from years ago, and I'm also putting together a collection of essays from the last. 40 or oh, 30 years or so. So I'm getting old now, so it's you know over 30 years of essays, uh, including some classic work like The Extropian Principles, which is my particular version of transhumanism. Um, I just published an essay on you know people's fears about living long and being stagnant. So I've, there's a lot of transhumanist writing on my blog too. And I have links to other people's blogs who are quite sympathetic.
1: Amazing. Well, today has just been so incredible to, to speak to you and, and learn so much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been fun, hasn't it? So yeah, I, I look forward to coming and um, Yeah, maybe catching up in Arizona and, and seeing the facility and things like this yeah,
0: yeah. Come visit. we'll come visit you as well
1: and I, I've <laughs> invited you to come to Dubai yeah. 100% That'll you have great. to come yeah, yeah they, have, they
0: have a view of the vi- a vision of the future too which is interesting
1: they do mm. yeah. they do and I think in terms of longevity and, and things like this I, I think as you said before I wouldn't be surprised if this is a topic that's starting to get a bit more mm. attention as it should as well
0: something positive people get interested in so yes
1: yeah. exactly
0: and that's you know we, we talked about about governments. Uh, one way we could try to approach governments to support this better is Right now, the population is aging quite rapidly, even worse in China, we don't have it so bad here. But in every, oh, Japan is really bad. So uh, what can you do about that? It's gonna bankrupt the social security systems. So what you can do is you can stop people aging. So if you can stop the aging process or slow it down, people can work longer, they'll be healthier, you won't have to support them you know, in hospitals so much because we spend huge amounts of money on, on sicknesses that shouldn't really exist. And those are mostly age-related conditions. So by doing something about the aging problem, we're gonna also solve these massive financial and demographic problems. I think that's a promising approach to government because you're showing the problem they're gonna have that's get them voted out of office. We have a solution for you if you fund this. Now we spend huge amounts of money on cancer research, but most cancer, there's a few exceptions, but most cancer is age-related. Now, young people rarely get cancers except certain special ones. Same with heart disease. So if we solve aging, we solve cancer, we solve Alzheimer's, we solve all these very expensive problems at once. So I think that's the kind of the
1: sales point to government. No, I agree with you. And I think it's fascinating to see how much money they put towards this sick care system that we're presently in and hardly anything towards actually creating a proper healthcare system.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta, getting at the root cause of things is, I mean, it's more difficult, but uh, there aren't many incentives to deal with that because you have to, to produce a very expensive drug, you have to spend a lot of money, you have to go through trials. The government makes it a lot more expensive than necessary, so then you have to, you know, have patents on it, you have to better make money back. Having something that isn't patentable that's like a basic health preservation thing is more difficult. So I think there is recognition of that, but it's hard to get a grip on it. But if we actually have treatments for aging, and and the government, this is an important point, um, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, does not recognize aging as a disease. So right now, if you have a treatment that might do something about aging, you can't get that, you can't do a clinical trial because it's not recognized as, as an issue. That has to change. Once we recognize aging as a disease, you can go to the FDA, uh, unfortunately, you have to go through the FDA. It can then approve the trial. We can actually get treatments for aging. But right now, it doesn't even recognize it as a problem. So
1: it's fascinating. And I think when people challenge my view about potentially being able to solve aging, and you know, experts like you and, and things like this. It makes me wonder why not, they're not even thinking back to the olden days where humans used to die when they're like 30 or 40, or they used to die of tooth cavities and things. Like these are things that if we died of, of a tooth cavity these days, people would be horrified. Yeah. But it's just like a quick trip to the dentist and it's solvable. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the future we look back and we're like, oh my God, we used to exactly. die at 70, yeah. like what the heck?
0: That's an important point because yeah, you know, people who say, well, why should you live longer? That's not normal. Well, Go back a little bit. It was normal to die at 20 or 30 or 40 at the best. So why is why is today's lifespan the exactly right one? It was different 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Why is today's exactly the right one? That's obviously nonsense. So it's just that you've settled. It's called the status quo bias. What is today is what we think is, is normal and, and right, but it wasn't just a short time ago. It won't be in the future. So I think if you ask people, well, should we shorten life by five years? Like for instance, people say life will be meaningless if it's, if it's stretched out. Well. Should we kill people earlier? Will their lives be more meaningful by compressing their lives? That gets them to think a little bit more critically, I think.
1: Well, today's been absolutely wonderful. It's been so fun. Thank you, Max Moore, for joining me for coffee.